back. I hope you've had a good week this week. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with us to the prophet Jonah. Prophet Jonah in your Old Testament. How does it go? Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah? Is that yep. something? I don't know. I think it's along those lines. Jonah chapter 1. And you may remember that we, we talked uh, last week about how we're going to begin uh, looking at providence through several different themes. So the plan is that we will deal with the issue of God's sovereignty over nature or what we call natural disasters, um, which includes illness and disease, all kinds of different things that happen in that order. And then uh, we want to move on and talk about God's sovereignty over birth and over death, uh, Lord willing, next week. And then sovereignty over Satan and demons. One of the questions, why does God allow Satan to continue to exist? God could have thrown him into hell thousands of years ago. Why does God allow Satan to continue doing terrible things? Well, there's good reasons God has for, for what God allows Satan to do. And uh, then we've got God's sovereignty over sin itself, which will probably take a few weeks to talk about because that's a big subject. And um, yeah, so there's, there's just a lot to cover here. Uh, Jerry, can you pray for us? And then uh, we, will, we will jump in. Yes, sir, I'd love to. Gracious Father, what a great joy it is to... Um uh, think through uh, your providential uh, hand in all that goes on. And Lord, we're, we're very thankful today that we can um, know this is true, to believe and trust, um, not just wishful thinking at all, uh, but the truth of the matter is that you're governing um, all that's going on, and we are very grateful for that, and we're grateful to live under that uh, that providence that you um, uh, exhibit continually throughout all of life. So today, today, Father, I pray that we'd be less man-centered and more uh, centered on you, that our thinking would begin to uh, match yours in a different way. And we do thank you that um, as high as the heavens are above the earth, your thoughts are higher than our thoughts and your ways higher than our thoughts. But we pray today that ours would um, uh, become a little closer to the way uh, you uh, go about things and that our mind uh, would be changed um, and that uh, this week as um, things happen that maybe um, they don't look good or they don't look favorable, um, that we would see them in a new light. And we com commit this time to you and uh, look to, to you to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we jump into Jonah here, Jerry, just to put you on the spot, when you think about the book of Jonah... <laughs> Well, there's a lot of things that we think about with this book. It's a great story. It's a tremendous story that everyone knows since they're a child, usually. Um, but what, what's so remarkable, do you think, about God's sovereignty in this book? Because yeah, it, is, it is really amazing. It is. I, I think as, uh, and maybe you saw this in the Piper book, but um, just one thing after another, from the worm to the, uh, the, the little tree that grows and gives him shade, to the uh, fish that he appoints, to all of these things that go on there that when you start looking for them, there's, you know, more than a half a dozen things that are just are specifically that God did just at that time, just for that circumstance. And that goes on all day long. I mean, that's, I think, the great part about it is this isn't just in Jonah. There's a uh, um, quite a few instances in Jonah that we see, but this is continually. This is the way God does everything. And, uh, but when he mentions it, it makes you take, step back and take note to say, yeah, God's, God's in control of what's going on here. And uh, 
certainly Jonah, I think, knew that running away and did anyway. And so, you know, we can we can learn a lesson or two from from his bad attitude. Yes. So look with us here. Jonah chapter one. I'm just going to move through pretty quickly a few verses on the subject of God's providence. Jonah chapter one, verse four. And remember, Jonah's running away here, and it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. So as Jonah is running away, the Lord himself hurls a windstorm after Jonah. It's not like a a storm happened to occur, or that weather just had a fluke where randomly there was a storm. No, God hurled the windstorm upon the sea. Look at verse 7. Uh, they couldn't decide who was guilty uh, for, the, for the storm on the boat. And they said to one another, this is Jonah 1.7, come let us cast lots that we may know whose, on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, just like throwing dice, and the lot fell on Jonah. Do you think God was behind that? Absolutely. The lot, Proverbs says, is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So even as these pagan sailors are throwing dice on the ship, how do the dice land? They land on Jonah. They, they point to Jonah, which shows God is even sovereign over the casting of lots. Uh, verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Now, we don't get a direct uh, word that this was the Lord, but is it obvious who stopped the storm? Mm-hmm. It was obviously God. They threw him into the water, and as soon as he touches the water, the, the storm goes like, the, the sea goes like glass. Clearly, the Lord is the one stopping the storm. Uh, look at verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The fish did what God appointed the fish to do, and every fish always does whatever God appoints that fish to do. Remember when they're confronting Jesus about paying the temple tax? I think it was the temple tax. And he says, okay, do do king's sons have to pay the tax to the king? No, they don't. Well, I'm the son of the king of the universe, so I don't actually have to pay the temple tax, Jesus says. But just to not offend anybody, I'll pay the temple tax. Peter, go over to the shore, cast in your line, pull out the fish, open its mouth. What are you going to find? You're going to find the coin to pay the temple tax. How did that happen? I don't know, but the Lord appointed that fish to swallow that coin and to bring it right to where Peter was and to be caught by Peter and to be brought in. And Jesus can speak 100 and what was it, 157 fish into the nets or whatever it was uh, in John 21 on the Sea of Galilee. Cast your net on the other side of the boat and 150 something fish go into the boat, go into the net. How did that happen? Because Jesus literally appointed 157 fish to do exactly what his his bidding was. God is this sovereign over, over inanimate objects Uh, Greg, can you read chapter 2, verse 10? Yeah. It says, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. (laughs) A a lovely uh, picture there, isn't it? (laughs) Not a very, that's probably not going to make it into your children's Bible. The, uh, that image there maybe is a little bit, uh, it cleaned Jonah up a little bit. I'm sure he was not looking his best at that moment. But you see, clearly, the, the Lord, by miraculous uh, effort, kept him alive in that fish for the three days. I have no doubt that that was a miracle of God. And the Lord spoke to the fish. And the fish did what God said. He vomited Jonah up on dry land, gave him a second chance. Chapter 4, let's skip to chapter 4. And I'm skipping over chapter 3, but you could add here. The whole city of Nineveh dresses in sackcloth and repents and calls out to God for mercy. Do you think that happened just randomly? No, obviously God was empowering the message that Jonah preached in order to convict the whole city from the king down to the peasants uh, of that city where they all cried out in repentance. But chapter 4, verse 6 Uh, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah 
that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Verse 7, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. I love this. God appointed a worm uh, that attacked the plant so that it withered. Wait, can you read that without smiling? So God says, okay, I want this plant to grow up over Jonah's head. I'm going to shade Jonah, save him from the, the, the really hot sun out here, and he's going to wait. And he, he's hoping he's going to see Nineveh destroyed because that's what Jonah wants. He's just, Lord, please rain down fire on this city, and he's waiting. And of course, the Lord is going to be merciful and compassionate to the city that has repented. And as Jonah waits, God appoints the plant, and then God appoints a worm, and the worm eats the plant, attacks the plant so that the plant withered. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Now, do you, do you notice, does God appoint the pleasant circumstances in this story like the plant to shade him in the heat? Does God appoint the pleasant circumstances? Yes. Does God appoint the fish to swallow him and save him when he's about to drown? Yes. Does God appoint the fish to give him a second chance, to spit him back up on the shore? Yes, all that is wonderful. Does God also appoint a storm to nearly drown Jonah and his crew? Does God also appoint a, a little worm to attack the plant and get rid of his comfort and bring discomfort into his life? Does God appoint a scorching east wind to make him very uncomfortable? Is God sovereign over the pleasant circumstances of our lives? Yes, he gives them of his own pleasure. Is God providentially sovereign over the, dis, the, un, the uncomfortable, the, the, the moments of discomfort in our life, the, the ones that lead us to, to genuine, uh, even times of, uh, of agony and pain? Yes. Is God working both of those in Jonah's story for the good of Jonah and for the glory of God? Yes. And, and I think this story speaks so clearly on that. Thoughts on, I, I know there's a lot we could say about Jonah, but... Something that occurred to me uh, thinking through Jonah's story um, you know, Jonah, in, in his case, it was a lot of like discipline, negative circumstances brought about for God to get him where he wanted to go. Um, but even the, like you said, pleasant, pain, whatever, God appoints whatever we go through as part of his process of taking us where he wants us to go. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time, we might not be able to fully understand that. I mean, Jonah obviously knew he was running from something. But if, if we're serving the Lord from a, from a, from a whole heart, you know, and we know we're not running from anything, we're not living in sin, and hard times still come, that's not God somehow just being mean or vindictive for something. You don't have to, you know, if you're living in light of Scripture and it happens, you don't have to wonder, is there some sin that I missed that somehow God's trying to get me for? That's, one, that's not how God works. But two, we need to understand, like, God is going to use what comes our way one, in our own lives to conform us to Jesus, to make us trust him more, to wean us off of, of our trust in whatever other things we might be trusting in. But it's also to, to direct our steps. And, you know, it's one of those things, it's not always going to be as obvious in our lives at first as it was in Jonah's life. I mean, and we're, we're going to think about the storm that came up. I mean, we're going to look at, think about natural disasters. I mean, think about Hurricane Katrina. Um, you know, we, we've mentioned David Platt several times in here, and this is it's just an interesting story because he used to be the pastor at, uh, was it Brook Hills in, in Birmingham. He was a, a seminary professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Katrina comes in, changes everything, and that's how he got to that church. Um, he wasn't looking for a church, wasn't planning for it to do that, but God directed his steps that way through a disaster that upset the lives of a whole lot of people. Um, and, you know, the point of sharing that is simply, you know, when, when something crazy comes, we'd be like, God, why am I going through this? Well, God knows exactly 
where he's going to take you through that. Um, and I think what we can learn from Jonah is, you know, don't, don't, um, don't reject that. Don't uh, grate against that. Don't resist that. You know, it's all right, Lord, this isn't what I would have preferred, but this is what you've sovereignly, providentially brought about. Lord, help me trust that you have a good purpose in this. Help me be faithful to what I have in this circumstance um, and trust that you're going to direct, direct my steps through it, wherever that may be. Mm. And Greg, I like what you're saying. I think the, the huge thing is we operate, I imagine, I know I operate in this idea that this whole thing's really about me, about my comfort <laughs> and about kind of like Jonah is here. I want to laugh at Jonah and I do laugh at Jonah, but I kind of laugh at him because I see myself in that same cranky state. Uh, oftentimes, and, and so I, I kind of operate on this. I want this, my comfort, my uh, convenience, whatever. And I, and I think it's just so big, and it, and it really is obvious when we think about God's after a way, his picture is way bigger than that. It's not just us in this world. There are eight other billion people, and he has way bigger fish to fry than to just take care of my conveniences. Right, and so there's so much more going on, and when we think about it that way, I think we would, you know, maybe be a little less self-centered um, in this whole thing. And that's what I think this Providence series does: is it opens it up to make our lives more God-centered, our thinking more mm -hmm. God-centered and less man-centered. Let, let me add something else here. If can you turn to Isaiah 40 in your Old Testament as well, to your le to the left of Jonah, Isaiah chapter 40. And we, we touched on Isaiah 40 a couple of weeks ago in one of the sermons, but this, this is a, a passage of great comfort. Remember, this is after the Babylonian captivity. Isaiah sees the future. God's people are being called out. They're called back home out of exile. And it's a, it's a passage of great comfort for God's people and of good news for Zion. But look, look at the, okay, think about this. There, there's a mingling in this chapter that is so beautiful between God's tender, affectionate, shepherding nearness like, I'm going to hold the sheep in my arms kind of language, this very Psalm 23 sort of language, this near and tender text. And it's mixed with what? It's mixed with God being sovereign over the stars, God being sovereign over the nations, God being bigger than you can possibly fathom. That's interesting, isn't it? So you have the tenderness of God like a shepherd holding a sheep, and you've got the bigness of God calling all the stars by name, putting them all in their place. Why would those two things be in the same chapter? Because the God who is strong enough to hold the, the world in order, he's strong enough to lift you up out of your discomfort, out of your trial. He can carry you in his arms. If he can carry the stars, he can carry you. And that, that's the picture. I'm going to read some of these verses. Uh, look, at, uh, look at verse uh, 11 of Isaiah 40. Here's the tenderness. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Now listen to his transcendence here. Who has measured the waters, the oceans, in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust, verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness will you compare him? An idol. And then he goes on and says, God is greater than idols, obviously. And look all the way at verse 25. Now he starts talking about stars. 
Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high. This is the night sky. Look up to the night sky and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host, some translations, their starry host. These are the stars. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all, hundreds of billions of them, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one star is missing in the night sky. And then look back to the comfort. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's just a beautiful text bringing together. God is in control of the whole universe, calling every star by name. Not one star is missing from God's plan. Every single one of the hundreds of billions of stars is doing exactly God's bidding. He's named every single one with his own, in his own counsel. And then he looks at you and says, don't say that I can't see you. Don't say that your way is hidden from the Lord. Mm -hmm. If I can give strength to the stars to make them burn bright in the sky, I can renew your strength. I can get you through this day. I can renew your youth like, like eagles so that you'll run and not be weary. You can walk and not faint. And in the month of May, it's always good to hear that God can yeah. renew your strength because it could be an exhausting month. Thoughts or reflections on this chapter? I mean, verse 27, I mean, it's, it's, it's encouraging, but it's also kind of like a mild rebuke at the same time because mm. he's like, why do you say? Like, you, my people who have my word, why are you of, of anyone saying, God doesn't know where I'm at, God can't see, God doesn't care, this, that, and the other. It's like, you know, God knows the stars, but he hadn't attached his name to the stars. He's attached his name to his people. Mm. Like his, his, his name is on his people so that he identifies with his people uh, personally. And it's like, look, if, if I know all these things that, that are just part of the creation, but I've identified my very reputation with you, why would you think for a minute that, that I've forgotten about you, that I can't see what you're going through, that I don't know what's happening? It's like, you have my words, you know this. And so, I mean, we might want to take this at times, like if we find ourselves tempted to grumble or gripe and like say to ourselves, all right, come on self, why, why are you grumbling about this? You know this God, you know what his word says, you know what he's done in the past, you know how faithful he is, you know he is sovereign, he is providentially working. Like we need to kind of turn that rebuke on ourselves sometimes and just be like, hey self, come on. Like, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones mm -hmm. said, don't listen to yourself, talk to yourself. Mm -hmm. We need to talk to ourselves sometimes and be like, self, come on, you know better than this. You know better than this because you know the word. Um, and so we need to be ready to argue with ourselves because this is one of those things when natural disasters, the unforeseen things that aren't like human origin generated kind of stuff, that's when we're like, God, what are you doing? God, why? God, the things that, that we can't account for. And that's when we be like, look, remind ourselves in that moment who God is, what God has done, what God has said, and argue with ourselves until we basically shut up with our griping.
Mm. And go outside and do that. Otherwise, people think <laughs> yeah. people think you're a little when you're just having that My conversation. Yeah. That already, so <laughs> but no, it's okay. I do think that um, if Scott was here, he would remind us just of the gospel. We just have to remember yeah. if we start to think that God doesn't care for us, He gave us His own Son, and now along with Him, He'll graciously give us all things, and things are working together for good. Well, uh, remind, we know like that. the good, like if we're a believer. It can only be for our good, no matter how painful, how hard, how long it is in terms of endurance. It can only be for our good. I mean, that's one of the benefits of the cross is Jesus turns all our trials into a means by which God sanctifies us, draws us near and all those good things. Like there can be nothing that comes our way that is meant for our bad if we're a believer. Even the hardest things. Yeah, even the hardest things. And that is so great. We remembered that. Oh, I yeah. know. Piper gave three things. Piper says uh, there are at least three reasons that we need to closely study this idea of the, all the natural uh, being completely governed by, by God. And we can enjoy, I think we can enjoy it in a whole lot more better way if we, if we think about this. And maybe we'll just take them one, one at, a, at a time here and talk about them a little bit. First, the natural world, and I hadn't thought through this very well. First, the natural world threatens to harm us more consistently or constantly than human accident or assault or war. So you think of all the physical ailments, cancer, heart attacks, just growing old, um, you know, and then on top of that, hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, flooding. Those things can do a number on our joy if we're not uh, seeing them um, in the right way. Any thoughts uh, uh, about that? It's, it's not um, sometimes other people doing things to us you know, but but just kind of what's naturally happening. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's an accident. You're mentioning Romans eight twenty eight, that idea of everything working together for our good. It's not an accident that the word good is used, right? And we always define the word good comfortable in American ways, right? <laughs> good is like a nice flat screen TV. Good is like air conditioning. Good is like a nice summer day at my house. No, no, good is the very next verse, being conformed to the image of his son. So if we define good God's way, what's good for me is not necessarily comfort, uh, not that God wants us to be uncomfortable, but God cares far more about our holiness than about our temporal circumstances as far as it goes. And so God will work those difficulties for our good. But then that same chapter, Romans 8, you get a little further down that chapter, and what, what does it say? He mentions distress, persecution, famine. That's natural disaster type stuff, right? Famine, uh, nakedness, danger, sword. And then he says, you know, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. And, the, and he says, we're being killed all day long. So within the context of everything working for our good, he includes c- catastrophe, famine, uh, murder, death, war, all that is included. And he says, no, even in the midst of those things, we're still more than conquerors through him who loved us. So I, I, I certainly think that Paul has in mind the worst of circumstances mm-hmm. and the more pleasant altogether in that, in that section. Yep. Anything other on that, Greg? No, I'm good. If we're going to enjoy number two, um, our Lord properly, Piper says that we have to have a deep and an unshakable, a life-stabilizing conviction um, about God's providence and his macro and his micro um, control of all of nature and everything that goes on. And then, and number three, well, you know what? I was just thinking about about this. I was thinking about, okay, um, even in, he mentioned, if there's a plane crash, 
we'll talk about it. And, and oftentimes, the Lord will get, like, how could he allow this type of thing? And Papa, you probably know this, but uh, I think Piper wrote that there's 100,000 planes that land safely every day. You know, and how much do we really talk about that? You know, and that's, I, I just, I thought in my own life, I added up the, the times going back and forth to school. Um, there's been 4,500 of those. And I've crashed a lot, but I haven't crashed on the way to school and back ever. 180,000 miles is what I think I've gone to school and back. And so far, it might happen Monday, but so far... <laughs> Those have been pretty safe. And they think, well, that's what I need to be thankful. Why am I not more thankful each day for that? Yeah, you know, instead of always going to the one thing that doesn't work, most of the time, God really gives us some pretty comfortable situations. Yes, and I'm going to butcher the details, but there was several years ago, he, Piper wrote an article about this issue, and uh, he, he basically said, uh, this is something that would never get headline news. And this is what he wrote. He said, in the last 365 days, there has not been a single death in a passenger airliner uh, catastrophe in the whole year. So there had been some Cessna accidents, some little airplanes, but in terms of commercial airliners, not a single one had had a crash with a fatality for a full year. And he says, where are the headlines on that news story? Nobody is going on MSNBC or whatever to, you know, on, the, on the news channel saying, how could God allow sinful people like us to get on an airplane? and to take off and land all around the world for a whole year and no one die. What kind of gracious God are we serving? That will, you'll never see New York Times headline, one year God doesn't let one plane full of sinners wreck with a single death. You're not gonna get that headline. What you're gonna get is the one airliner that does go down, right, in the next year. Where is God? How could a good God allow this airplane to go down? What is God thinking? Was God asleep at the wheel? And, and Piper's point is we have completely, we're reading the news exactly upside down. Every time the plane lands safely full of sinners like me, we should say, what grace? Every time the sun comes up, what grace? Every time I take another breath, what grace? But instead, the second our circumstances aren't what we planned, why is my baggage late? You know, we are immediately grumbling. We're angry. We're ready to start, you know, it's Job's wife, curse God and die. It's, it, we, we turn into this very demanding, entitled person. But from, the, from God's perspective, every single moment is sheer grace. It is undeserved favor, and we should be blessing God, not cursing God for, 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 for what is happening around us. And I'm certainly praying that, that more would know uh, his, saving, his saving mercy. Yeah, no, that's for sure. Third one, and this is the one that we can camp on a little bit here. He says, um, we have to see God's providential in, hand in nature to understand his purpose in governing everything. Now, he definitely, and heard him um, say it this week, he is not saying that we will understand all the mysteries. His reasoning is way beyond ours. He is doing things for 8 billion people when we're thinking of ourselves, right? There's, so he's not understanding, we'll understand all the mysteries, but God is governing everything because nothing is accidental and everything is purposeful. We can trust him. That's all we need to know. And then we can trust him. And we can trust him completely. And then we won't rely on our, on our own kind of faulty understanding or faulty, um, you know, understanding and, and um, reasoning on things. But you love the Luke passage. Yes. On, on that. And that'd be a good time yeah, to go. Yeah, yeah. Let's go, to, let's go to Luke 13. 
And I believe the person who originally taught this was R.C. Sproul uh, a good number of years ago, probably decades ago. I think, he, I think the sermon title was something like the mis... This is a weird sermon title. I think it was the misplaced locust, locus of astonishment. Like, who names a sermon that except for R.C. Sproul? <laughs> the, the, the misplaced locus of astonishment. What, is, what does that mean? And uh, he, he basically is making the point that the people Jesus is talking to here are astonished by the wrong thing. Their, their astonishment is misplaced. And Greg, can you read just the first five verses yeah. of Luke 13? Luke 13, one through five. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So just look at verse 4. Just, this is something like a natural disaster. A building collapses suddenly. Verse 4, those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish perish. Greg, just thoughts on, that's an amazing thing to say in that kind of a circumstance. Well, he's, he's picking up on something. I think I, I mentioned this briefly, like earlier. Um, there's this, this mindset that uh, Job's friends get into yes. um, that, that is very common. It's easy to slip into that says, if you are walking with God, things will go well. Mm-hmm. If you sin, you disobey, things will go bad. Um, and that's not just something that we deal with today that we have to be careful with. It was in Jesus's time, especially the Pharisees, you know, if, if something like this happens to you, you must have sinned really bad. If a tower fell, I mean, come on, man. Mm-hmm. If you were walking with Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. And so that's the mindset Christ is pushing back against. And we, we have to put ourselves in those shoes because we, we are spoiled rotten by how much grace we get, mm-hmm. by how much we understand the whole teaching of God. Put yourself in the, the shoes of these people in their, the, their mindset and their frame of reference. They really believe that, man, they must have been really bad sinners for something like that to happen to them. And, oh, God, I, I don't want to screw up because what's going to happen to me? How's God going to take me out if I mess up? And so that's the, that's the air they breathed. It was, it was the world they lived in. It was the mindset they had. And so they come to Jesus. All right, yeah, Jesus is going to say those, those must have been really bad. And, and Jesus, I mean, he does not answer this. Like you said, the locus of astonishment's in the wrong place. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, man, what about those people over there? Jesus is like, look, you don't need to worry about them. You need to worry about you. Like you're still breathing. You still have life and in, in, in breath in your lungs. And, you know, don't worry about those people. Worry about your own soul. Like it, it's because we, we have all these excuses, you know, that we throw up and we think, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really have to deal with the truth because, well, what about, you know, the whatabouts? What about this or what about that or what about this and what about that? And, and Jesus, he just cuts through this. I'm not having that. It's like you're just throwing up a smoke screen. No, you need to repent because a day is going to come when you're going to perish. Um, and if you haven't repented, it's not going to go well for you. Um, and so the focus is don't get distracted by, well, how could this happen to those people? Where was Jesus like, look, 
you need to consider the state of your own soul right now. If you don't repent right now and you died, you're separated from God, you're done, no hope for anything after that. I mean, we're adding a few things in there, but that's the parish, separated from God forever in hell, um, under the punishment, the just punishment of God. It's like, you need to repent. Don't worry about those people over there and what happened to them. You need to worry about your own soul and your own standing with God. So Piper said that like one of the things that uh, every time a disaster happens, whether it's a tsunami or a tornado or people or people die, and of course we want to do everything we can to minimize that and to help people in those circumstances that should go without saying, pray for them. But whenever that happens, the first thing I should think of is I should be amazed I was not underneath those floodwaters. I was not under that tower that fell. I was not there when that tragedy happened. So God spared me in his mercy, spared you in, your mer- in his mercy from those events. And then my next thought should be, God, help me to live in a way that is repentant. Help me to be humble before you. Help me to fling away my sin and to be, be right with you. So you want to be careful how you say this to somebody because there's a time and a place to say certain things. When you're at the funeral, you don't have to bring up the, uh, the, the really heavy doctrinal point and hit someone over the head at the funeral. You, you just weep with those who weep in a funeral setting. I'm not saying you bring this up in those circumstances, but there's a time and a place to bring these things up. And one thing is true. Whenever these tragedies happen, God is calling the remainder of the world to repentance. He is asking us to say the wages of sin is death, the fact that I did not die today is God's mercy, and therefore I need to get right with him. And so these tragedies should not lead us to go curse God and die. They should lead us like Job to say, God, God be merciful to me. God, God help me. It should, it should lead us to his feet. So God, in one sense, is always making a call to repentance whenever something tragic happens in this world for all the rest who, are, who, are, who remain. And then we need to go and do our part and tell um the, spread the gospel to those people that he's reaching out to and trust what Greg said earlier that Romans 8.28 is being applied to all of us that do know him through those, through those trials for sure. Um, go ahead, Greg. I was going to say, and let's not be afraid when the opportunity presents itself to just be honest with people about God's sovereignty in this. Yeah. We don't need to apologize for God. We don't need to protect him. Um, obviously, we want to be sensitive, and there's, there's times and places, but when the opportunity presents itself, don't be afraid to tell somebody, look, God brought this into your life to get, get you woken up to be serious about your own soul and your walk with him and your need of a Savior. Um, if you're talking with an unbeliever, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll put it that way, um, because a lot of people, like, they, they need to know that. Like, this isn't without purpose, even in the lives of unbelievers, when calamity and disaster strikes. God is using that to wake people up to the fact that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and we don't need to withhold that. It's like, look, I don't know all the reasons why this happened, but I can tell you one for sure. If you don't know Jesus, God is using this to wake you up to the fact that you need him. We don't need to shy away from that. We don't need to be ashamed of that because that's true. Now, we need to be, you know, God help me be gracious and humble, but God help me be bold and not hold that back. They need to understand. People, we need to hear it, and people need to understand you know, God has a purpose for you in this, especially if you're a non-Christian, to wake you up. Because, I mean, that's mercy. If you survive something and you're still there, that's mercy. If you're not a believer and you survive something, that is mercy from God to give you another moment, another breath to turn to Christ. And we need to shepherd that as clearly as we can. I, I, as you're saying that, I just thought of a story. I don't think I've told this. I don't know if I've told this before. 
I don't even know if Kelly and I were married yet. Uh, this is probably eight years ago, maybe nine years ago. We were, we were at a pool somewhere around here, and uh, I, was, I was taking an evangelism class online, and I was reading a book for my class at, at the pool, because at the pool, I don't really, I'm just like, I'm going to read a book. So, I, <laughs> so I'm sitting near the pool, and I'm reading a book, and there's this, there's this lady probably in her late 50s or so, and she, she apparently swims there regularly, like all the time, in the indoor pool at this place, and uh, I'm sitting there, and somehow we get to talking. We're just, we, we start, start having a conversation, and she's by herself, and um, I'm going to butcher some of the details. Here, here's what I remember, because I wrote some of this down that day. Um, she said that her, I hope I'm not remembering this incorrectly, her, she lost her husband through a motorcycle accident. He had died on a motorcycle a, 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 you know, a good many years ago. And she knew that I was a Christian because of what I was reading. And I think, I guess we had talked a little bit about that. I don't know what all, but she knew I believed in God at least. And however we got to this point, I don't remember, but, but she eventually said something like this. Some people told me that God had a plan for my husband's death. And she said, that's, and then she used the word BS, but she actually said the words. Uh, she said, that's that. And I was like, ooh, okay. Because that's exactly, I mean, <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I believe. And so then, then she, she asked me what I believe. And I said, well, I, I do believe, you know, God's in control. And I don't know what all I said. But then she says, you're very young. <laughs> she says, you're, you're very young. Mm-hmm. I was probably mid, mid-20s or so. She says, you're, you're very young. She's like, I would like to hear your opinion about that when you've had some time to experience some pain. Mm. That's what she told me. I never forgot that. That just stuck it deep into my memory. Uh, and I wrote it down in the inside cover of the book I was reading. I actually wrote some, some of the details down. Uh, and, and, you know, nine or 10 years later or whatever, just watching my brother, what he's walked through the last year, I, am, I believe it far more than I've ever believed it in my life. I, I just, there is no doubt in my mind that God is sovereign over life and death, that God is sovereign over, over the, the best and worst circumstances. God is in it. He is good. He is holy. He has wise purposes. And I want to say back in the most gracious way to that poor lady who lost her husband, who clearly was not a believer, I, I want to say back to her, what hope do you have without that God? And she used the word, those curse, the curse word to describe the God who's in control of her husband's death. What do you have if God's not in control of your husband's death? You have a freak accident with no purpose. How can you pick the pieces up when there's no good God behind it? You just have random nothingness. That's all you have to look at with your, at your husband's grave. But what if you have a good sovereign God with inscrutable, wise purposes who is working something absolutely astonishing out for his glory, like he did with his own son's death? And it's not a curse word. It's glorious. It's glorious, life-sustaining, life-giving truth. So if I ever run into that lady again somewhere along the way, I would love to have a second conversation, but I don't think that's likely to well, happen. Well, Scott Liliana is who I thought of when you were talking about that story, is to just to say what we saw was Scott and Liliana have a foundation of these truths. It was foundational. That's why we're Absolutely. doing this series. Absolutely. It's before more things happen, because they will if we can have a better handle on God's providential control on everything, then we, we think through it. We go through that grid instead of our natural grid. Because mm-hmm. the natural way our mind thinks it's not going to be good, and we're going to worry, and we're going to complain, and we're going to sin in countless ways. But we saw Scott and Liliana walk through the most severe trial in a godly fashion because of this doctrine, the doctrine of providence. And, uh, and you see the difference between someone who doesn't know the Lord when you're, the lady you're talking about and the way that Scott and Liliana process things. Let me just add one more piece to this and see what you think about this. There's, there's always going to be grief in suffering and loss. 
The Bible never, ever says don't grieve. It says what? Don't grieve without hope. So here's the thing. The world gives you the normal grief everyone has when there's suffering and loss. Everyone's going to have some kind of grief. When someone dies that you love, there's going to be grief. That's not sinful. That's not wrong. The, the Bible's full of lamentation. That's, that's fine. That's just part of being human. But you're either going to have the normal grief that comes with suffering with hope that God has a good purpose, or you're going to have the normal grief that comes with suffering plus hopeless pointlessness. That, that so your, your grief is either going to be doubled because you don't believe in a good sovereign God, or your grief can be cut in half, or, or far more so, really, if you believe in God, a good sovereign God. So there's going to be grief, but do you want double, triple, quadruple the grief because there's no good God underneath all this? It's just random happenstance. I got unlucky in life. Or do you want to know, even in the grief, God holds me in his arms? I mean, there's a vast difference between those two different kinds mm-hmm. of grieving, I, I think. I, I do want to, I want to mention something like, um, we will go through times where our grasp of these things will be tested. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I mean is, like, we can spout the doctrine. We can spout mm-hmm. it out. We can say it. We can be clear with it. But then God is going to bring circumstances that push us beyond our confidence in the truth. Mm-hmm. And you may... For a season, a short season, for a long season, find it difficult to trust in God. Okay? Um, don't be surprised if that happens. You have this truth, cling to it, surround yourself with people who believe it, preach it to yourself, but understand the way your heart works, the way my heart works is sometimes when hard times come and it's an extended season, like, okay. I can handle this for six months. What if it lasts for six years? That's going to test us in ways we cannot imagine. And we will find ourselves in moments tempted to say, maybe even saying things like Job's wife did. You still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Why are you still clinging to this God? That's not going to come from outside of you. That's going to come from within you. And in those moments... One, know there is a lot of grace to help you get your senses about you and bring you back to the truth. If you find yourself with someone struggling to that degree, harshness is the worst thing you can give. The, the last thing someone who is at that point needs is a hammer. They just don't need it. Listen, weep with them, listen more and listen more and pray, 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 pray earnestly. God will not let his people fully be given over to that. But there, will, there can be a season of struggle, of deep struggle, to where at two years before you'd look at this person and say, wow, look at how faithful and confident they are. If you saw some of us, if you saw me and some of my not-so-good moments, you'd be like, Greg, what's going on? Like, where's all that? Like, we all are going to have that. So be ready for that just because we know this doesn't mean that our hearts or our emotions are automatically going to follow. Um, you know, how was it that Scott and Liliana, well, because they doggedly took themselves to this. They drank deeply of it before. It sustained them through. Um, sometimes it, it, it might not go that smoothly. And I just want to be honest about that, okay? Sometimes, I mean, William Cooper, one of the best hymn writers that we know, 
uh, was friends with John Newton. William Cooper struggled with being suicidal. He struggled with depression. John Newton was constantly trying to encourage him and bring him out of that and help him. And yet he had some of the most profound things to write for us to sing. I mean, God moves in a mysterious mm-hmm. way. What an incredible hymn. Um, and we think, man, if you write a hymn like that, you got to just be rock solid on fire for Jesus. And he was, but he struggled. And you would have at times been like, dude, didn't you write that hymn? What's wrong with you? Um, and so just be prepared that at some points our experience in life is going to be very uneven and that God is going to take us sometimes through circumstances that will push us way beyond our confidence. Um, and it's in those moments that he forges in us a greater trust, a greater hope, a more rock-solid foundation that when we come out of that, you come out of that, like your hope and trust in the Lord, like you, you can't really measure it. It is just deeper. It is wider. It is more solid than it's ever been. So one, know that it could happen to you. Number two, be ready to be very patient and very patient with folks who might be in that place. Keep pushing them back to Jesus gently. Keep sharing truth with them gently. Keep praying for God to help um, and watch what God does through that that on the other side of it, you will see a, a, a solidity and a firmness to faith that you never would have thought was possible. And Greg, I think it's day to day. I think every day, that's such a good word that you're helping us close with here. That is gonna be every day practice this, practice yeah. believing the truth. And several times, both of you guys have mentioned, it's true. Why do we believe it? We believe it because it's true. This is not wishful thinking. None of us want to believe a lie. That doesn't do anybody any good. So we camp on the truth. We believe the truth. We practice um, operating by the truth. Let's not believe the lie anymore. And, uh, and, and we're far different. Just one very last closing thought going off with what Greg said. Do you remember a lot of you were here when I got to interview Scott uh, in maybe, was that February? January. Or January. And um, what Scott said sitting here on the stage was, he said that, you remember this? He gave the analogy of Romans 8 being like, a, like Mount Everest, like this, this mountain that he was inside of, like in the protection of this mountain with a storm outside. And he said it was, I think one of the early nights when he got the worst part of the diagnosis, he said that uh, it was the night when he crumbled to the ground, I think two different times in the, in the living room which is just, wow. And, and he said that God brought him out to the edge, almost like Elijah when the, when, the, when the storm was just outside on Mount Sinai when he walks to the edge. Scott said, it's like God took him to the very edge of the mountain. And God, is, is though Scott said, it's almost like he leaned just a, a little bit outside of the mountain and he got to see what the world would be like without Romans 8. And he said it was a storm that would completely flatten you. It would completely destroy you. And he said it was almost like for a moment, he kind of like stuck out and like saw it and, and just saw how horrifying that world is to believe no purpose, no God, no control, no goodness. And then God brought him back into the safety of, the, of Romans 8 and protected him from that storm. And I thought that was a great analogy to say that because that's exactly right. God's gonna take us sometimes and, 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 and stick us just outside the edge of that mountain and help us to feel what it's like on the other side of, of doubt and disbelief. And then by his grace, he brings us back in and into the safety and protection of that. That could take time, and that's a daily struggle to, to, to get back into the safety and security of, of that place. Can we close with Job 42? Yeah. And this is a great place to, I think we ought to read it maybe once a week. Job 38 through 42 are so good. A reminder on this, Job answered the Lord and said, this is as the Lord has uh, kind of schooled Job on 
what on his providence, on his sovereignty. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Mark, you pray? Yes. Uh, Lord, when, when the day comes, and, and for many of us, many days have already come, I am sure, in this room, but when the day comes for uh, our time of unusual suffering, uh, an unusual degree of suffering or uncertainty in our life, whether it's chronic pain or the, 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 the life-threatening illness of a loved one or of ourselves, uh, God, I pray that you would, uh, in your tremendous grace, we know you will, but I pray that you would hold on to us with a tight grip that you would not let us drift into unbelief, that you would keep us inside the safety and security of your promises, like a mountain that hides us from the storm, and that we would not wander out into that storm, which will absolutely devastate us if we go out there, because there is no hope outside that mountain. And I pray that you would hold us tightly within it, that you would hold us fast, uh, give us your grace, surround us with others who trust you and love you and love us, and uh, I do pray that you would help us get through those times of just immense difficulty and tragedy that, that come in life, and that you would prove yourself, again, faithful to your word and to your promises. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.